The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm doing awesome because we have a very exciting episode. L- little out of the ordinary for us. Little, little slightly, uh, slight deviation off, of course. You know, it's not that different. We've done director and DP combinations, and today's no different. We got a director and we got a DP. Uh, That's they weren't true. In the, in the room at the same time. We had to do kind of two parts, but it's yeah, it's it's a but director you're, and DP. You're bearing the lead a little bit. the The director is Oscar winner Ron Howard, and my old boss Ron Howard. He is just a piece of all of our lives. Like we all grew up with Ron Howard on TV and then making movies and he's made just, you know, some, some of the best movies over the years. And, uh, he made this documentary for Nat Geo called rebuilding paradise about basically the community coming together after the tragedy, uh, in paradise, California, where the city was literally burned to the ground. The whole city was burned to the ground. And he made a documentary called rebuilding paradise. That's like a cinema verte kind of fly on the wall in paradise, kind of checking in at certain increments of time. It's, it's really beautiful. It's inspirational. And I didn't get to say this to him, but in a way it reminds me of some of his movies like uh, Apollo 13, where you've got a bunch of people trying to solve a big problem. And it's all about sort of the the way that they tackle it and the personalities that that kind of come out and, and, and people kind of becoming their best selves as they do so. I thought it was a really amazing documentary. So we uh, we had the opportunity to interview Ron. We didn't. We only had him for about 20 minutes, but then we also interviewed uh, Lincoln Else, the DP. And uh, we go into a little bit more of what we do on the show uh, in terms of uh, discussing his background. But we're mostly talking about Rebuilding Paradise, and I hope everybody listening to my voice can go uh, check it out. It's, it's really an inspirational film and beautifully shot. Uh, you can see the film Rebuilding Paradise uh, through a virtual cinema link where your money goes to support your local theater. So, for example, if you're in Los Angeles, you could uh, support your local Lemley. Uh, we're going to have a link for you to do this in the show notes for this episode, which is located over at camnoir.com. So uh, head over there and check it out and then you can uh, link to the movie. So Ilya, you uh, had some listeners. We, we got a little bit of business. We got a little bit of business here. We gotta, you know, we gotta talk about our listeners. Our listeners are wonderful, and uh, I know some people might not make it to the complete end of the show, which is usually shame on you. You should listen yeah. to the whole end of the show. I mean, it's just <laughs> wall-to-wall amazing content, and you should never stop listening until. In, until, until the bitter phone, end, the, your the bitter phone end, runs out of batteries. P- we, yeah. uh, or, or, or we get a little punchy at, at the end, but usually that's our call to action. That's when I remind people, hey, please, you know, subscribe to us, follow us on the Instagrams if you're an Instagrammer, subscribe to the show where you get your podcast. Uh, believe it or not, a lot of people don't do those things. And so if you're one of those people, you know, uh, please do that. I think we just hit a thousand followers on Instagram, which I know it doesn't sound like much, but that's great. I think we have around that same amount on Facebook. So great. You know, Hey, uh, for the, for you people who do social stuff and don't socialize with us, please, please do please, uh, please socialize with us. Well, and definitely like, and subscribe. If, if you have a few minutes to write, you know, like love the show, like that's all you need to say. Just, uh, you know, write whatever from the heart, whatever you believe about the show. In fact, if you have criticisms, we read every review that goes up on the iTunes store. So go uh, go ahead and say something nasty. If, if that's super nasty, feel, say so. like Ben, yeah. shave your filthy beard. 
I can hear it on the microphone. Hey, uh, we also should now give credit to our listeners, our listeners who haven't liked us, subscribed or followed us. Uh, some of them, some of them here, I'm going to read, we're going to read them right now, have been writing nice things on iTunes. Uh, they've been going into the Apple podcast, iTunes uh review page area and have been writing all kinds of uh, really nice things about us including sometimes just a five-star review in one word like morale the geek wrote uh enlightening which was really nice morale the geek nice that's wonderful thank you uh then also uh sonic sonic lover sonic lover <laughs> wrote for us right. a headline here the authority and cinematography five stars i am a current film student and love this podcast Aww. it has given me more direction in the path that I want to take in film and I've learned so much from you guys. I'd love to see you interview Todd Campbell on his work with Sam Esmail. Thanks guys. It, us too. We would love to have Todd totally. Campbell and and Sam Esmail on the show. That would that would be phenomenal. So uh, And thanks for actually let us know who you'd love us to to try and get on because, you know, I mean, some people are more accessible than others to us, but actually in this horrible COVID-19 period, uh, we've opened up the floodgates to uh, having people on who aren't in the room with us. So that means people who are in other states or in other countries. And and uh, before that, we kind of had a strict policy of they had to actually uh, be in Ilya's office in Burbank in order to do it. And now, you know, we're we're going all over the place. So we, we'd love to hear who you want to hear. It, it just sounds better typically, but we've got a couple of tricks up our sleeves. So even if you're on the other side of the world, uh, we found some tricks to make you sound pretty good. The, the, so like, the trick is Zoom. Anyway, go on. No, no, there's there's another there's a couple other tricks, but we, yeah. we can improve on the way that Zoom sounds. Of uh, course. Uh, I, we also have to give a, a, a quick shout out here to a, another five star review we got here on Apple podcast from Pedro Gumerez, SOC. He wrote the best cinematography podcast, exclamation point, five stars. Whoa. Been binging for months now. Just keeps getting better. Love all the segments and opinions. Keep it up, guys. All right. We're doing our best. Uh, all right. So I got a couple more here. Uh, this one came via Instagram from uh, Mark Arisa. I hope I did that that correctly, Mark. It says, thank you for bringing back the war stories. Hey, well, we got 11 episodes there, 11 oh, war we, stories. We, that just... we love the war stories. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I am a big fan of everybody's war story. It's it, it reveals character. Well, well, Mark loves it, too. And he goes on to write out of all the quote unquote cinematography podcasts. I learned the most from you guys simply because it's not a technical podcast. I don't care about the gear or the equipment as much. I personally learn more from the personal experiences and philosophies because every set is different. One set of rules may not carry on to another. Technical and numbers will be the same, but people won't. Everyone is different and has their own path, and learning how to work and deal with people and situations is just as important. I couldn't agree more. And I mean, then, that is, that's our operating philosophy right there. We should like take that and just tell people that word for word before they come on the podcast. And, and he uh, he he gives us a little uh, end bit here where he writes, uh, with that being said, my favorite war story from volume one was Ellen Curris. That's a That's a great one. She's and awesome. It, and he wrote, don't judge a book by its cover and don't forget the double espresso hashtag woman in film. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want to say that uh, and it probably won't be out till part five of our war stories. But Alex Winter's war story is going to give every other war story a run for its money. Yeah, Alex Winter's war story is incredible. And I, I, I can't 
promote that enough. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one, making it out Super there. Okay, and our last really nice email that we received here is from Daniel Kerbine. Daniel wrote, I learned a lot from your interview with Toby Oliver. It gave me the opportunity to compare the visuals between season one and season two of Dead to Me, looking for the difference in style and use of light. I do prefer the look of season two, although the DP for season one was also a pro. I also think it was a good move to alias your podcast as Cinepod. Oh, okay. Well, well, great. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate that. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I learned a lot from Toby Oliver as well. He's awesome. Okay. So it's time for Close Focus. Our George Foyt Close Focus is about Mulan, which, a spoiler we got a wonderful, alert. Yeah, we got a wonderful interview with Mandy Walker yeah. coming up. Yeah, so. Mandy Walker, the DP of that. We, we've, we spoke to her months ago, and we've been holding out on releasing it because it was supposed to coincide with the theatrical release of Mulan, which just kept getting bumped, obviously, because of COVID. So we kept holding it and holding it and holding it. And we finally, we won't have to hold it any longer. So I, I'm, we're, we're super excited to bring uh, Mandy Walker's interview because she, um, you know, she she worked with Baz Luhrmann and, you know, she just has she has an amazing insight as well. But uh, Mulan, which was designed to be a giant theatrical film, as Mandy will tell us, because of COVID, uh, they're releasing it straight to Disney Plus, but they're releasing it kind of as a pay-per-view thing. So Disney Plus is going to have a $30 upcharge to uh, to watch Mulan at home. And uh, I've been noticing Ooh. people are freaking out. And I'm actually like. If there's two people in your house and you both watch it, that's kind of like buying two movie tickets. I mean, I know that movie ticket prices vary from state to state and city to city even. But, you know, here in L.A., there are plenty of theaters you could go to that would be more than $30 for two that's movie correct. tickets. Definitely cost you more. And now you get to pause it. Now you probably get to watch it over and over again if you were so inclined to watch it 20 probably i mean yeah. who knows how disney plus is going to handle it but it'll probably you know like on amazon if you rent something you can watch it within whatever 48 hour period as many times as you feel like i mean nothing is going to beat the theatrical experience and you know like we have um christopher nolan's uh, tenant coming up and like i'm imagining nolan who shoots stuff on imax is probably not even i wonder if it's in his contract that he can uh, have some say over the theatrical distribution but they're adamant that that's coming out in theaters which probably means they're going to sit on it until 2021 which i'll be once it's safe to go back to a movie theater i want to see that on a big screen and frankly i want to see mulan on a big screen but uh failing that this is not a bad deal in my opinion you know, it's interesting. It's definitely polarizing. I heard a radio talk show on my, my way to work today, and uh, they had a caller who was calling in who was livid about having to pay 30 bucks to see Milan at home. And uh, was basically like, I, you know, people aren't working right now. I got kids. They're going to see this. And now I got to spring 30 bucks to to watch something at home. I mean, I'm not getting the theater experience and I'm being charged more than the theatrical price. And granted, this is all relative. And there there is a really good point, I think, to be made here, which is typically when you are paying that ticket price at a theater, that theater is taking some portion of that money and getting to keep it for themselves. Certainly if the movie has been in release for a while and because Disney is controlling the distribution here and Disney is the taker of not only your monthly subscription fee, but now also a bonus $30 for the, this movie. And they yeah. don't have to share it with a theater or possibly even like a credit card processor or anything else. They're, they're sharing almost no percentage of that money with a third party. They get to keep all of that. 
Mulan could end up being an incredibly successful and very, very big movie because they're getting the lion's share. They're getting all of it. They're probably getting 90 plus percent of that money. I guess the thing, though, is like, you know, with brand new releases, we always had the opportunity to say, I'm not going to watch that and wait till it was on premium cable if we subscribe to that or Netflix or whatever. There are any number of outlets you could just sit on it and Mulan, no mystery, it's going to be on Disney Plus one day. And you won't have to pay the upcharge for it. It's just, it's a brand new release. And I don't know. I, I feel like these are the compromises that we're being asked to make in, in a world where like you can't go to the movie theater. Like Disney wants nothing more than to put that in a movie theater. And people want nothing more than to go see that in a movie theater. But that's just not an option right now. So would you rather have no Mulan or would you rather pay if you have two kids and two adults, say, and you were going to any movie theater at a matinee price, plus popcorn or whatever else you're going to do, plus maybe parking, plus gas to get there, you're going to spend more than 30 bucks to go see the movie in most cities. If you have $30 to watch the movie with, then you then you can afford to do that. And if you don't have $30 and you have Disney+, Plus, they only have like 5 million hours of other things you can just watch, you know? <laughs> it, it is truly first world problems right now because uh, if, if it is you don't have anything to watch that's not true now now you have a oh ton my God. of stuff to watch yeah. more stuff than you than you ever knew if Free you have stuff if you've if got you have an a computer connection. and an internet connection you have youtube and you have you know oh, but canopy if you've got a library card oh my it's god like, i love uh, canopy peacock if you're willing to sit through commercials that's launching soon and that's or all Hulu. Gonna be free. i mean there's there's the, yeah there's there's no end of it so i mean i do feel like disney i mean it might be a failed experiment and people might not go for it but i suspect they will and the evidence that i would cite is uh trolls world tour which i don't think was 30 bucks but it was a premium uh rental price on amazon i didn't see it so i don't actually know how much it was maybe someone can correct me but uh that made a hundred million dollars i believe on pay-per-view so you're going to have to mark my words here on this, but now that this is going, I believe, to be mainstream, that, that studios are going to look at the viable theatrical release, essentially, on a, a VOD platform like they're doing with Mulan, like like has happened with Trolls, you're going to start to see, I'm going to say right now, subscription mail sort of bonuses coming as like a premium. You might pay $30 to watch it, but if you pay $40, you might actually get like uh, something in the mail with like a special like ready to pop popcorn with a special like commemorative uh, keychain. You are, mm -hmm. you know, and if you're willing to pay like $100, who knows? Maybe you'll end up with the Mulan action figure. Well, not something like they'll throw in milk duds. They're going to, I mean, they're going to try and bring, it's a premium experience now at home. They're going to try and add as much stuff. Mark my words, there's going to be some like loot crate style subscription stuff that like, Hey, you're, 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 you, you're not just having the no commercials. You're not just having this for the people who can afford it or who want the extra thing. The studios are going to oblige. They're going to, no. they're going to want that person to pay $80 or a hundred dollars to see a movie. I mean, it's a great idea. And, and I mean, you know, like there was the kerfuffle between universal and AMC because of the trolls world tour thing. And then apparently they settled it. It's, it's going to be closing down theatrical windows when we get back to business. But my opinion is that once we can safely go back to movie theaters, people want to go to movie theaters. Like, I, I don't, I, I think that there's like a fear in the industry that this is somehow going to squash theatrical and that we're never going to come back to theatrical. But I think that people, it's a different experience. I say it a million times. I've probably said it on the podcast a million times. There is a difference no matter what the content is in watching it at home, you know, in your, in your sweatpants versus going to a movie theater and watching it with a crowd of strangers. Yes. And, and the, the number one difference right now is COVID. 
Well, yeah. Well, now, no, I mean, like now you're not going to do it. You're simply That's not right. going to do it. You're, you're but, not going. But I believe that the secret sauce of going to a theater, you know, like I love looking at it on a big screen. I love the amazing sound. I love all that stuff. But one of the biggest things that a movie theater gives me is the experience of watching it in a room full of strangers and kind of having a communal experience watching something, which I'm never going to get at home. Frankly, that's not what you're watching stuff at home for. And that's, you know, when I watch something that is made for television at home and I'm watching it by myself, uh, I mean, like, would Breaking Bad be a good theatrical experience? Maybe. Mm. I don't know. It's, 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 it's long uh, for that. Well, I will tell you, it's not going to be the same experience as going to see Snakes on a Plane opening night. Opening oh night, God. Snakes in the Plane. And I know you know what it's like because you saw it with me. The, when the, the first time there's ever any hint of snakes to have the entire audience erupt going very Snaking. little, <laughs> uh, very few theatrical experiences will ever compare to going to see snakes on a plane opening night, including going to see snakes on a plane like three weeks later and expecting it to be the same experience and, and it was talking not. a bunch of my friends into going to see it and then being like, oh, without the audience engagement, this movie actually is not that great. <laughs> Uh, well, the experience, uh, the, the movie was stayed the same, but the experience is definitely different. Although so, I got to tell you, uh, there, there's a band called Cobra Starship that has a song at the end of it that they show the whole music video under the end credits. Love it. Every time I bought the single, I bought the music video on iTunes. That's how much I love that song. And I still love it. And I'll defend it to the end, even though it's one of those songs that has kind of like a hokey rap part in the middle of it. I still like it. This was uh, the song was in Snakes on a Plane. This it's was over the, the end credits run over the song by Cobra Starships. Uh, wow. I think it's just called Snakes on a Plane. I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, uh, we should stop talking about this now, though, and get to the interview. So uh, just for our listeners sake, our first interview here is with Ron Howard, who should uh, I've already sung his praises and he should require no introduction. But uh, but we only had him for a shorter period of time. And then after that, we'll go to the interview with uh, Lincoln else. And that's a, a bit longer and goes into his background as a DP. So here is Ron Howard. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So our tendency with a podcast is to talk about cinematography, but you know, when we talk to directors, we try and go into you know a little bit more of the directing craft and how, how it applies. And I feel like my first big question for you is, as someone who you've made some documentaries before, but as far as I know, this is the first cinema verte style documentary where, where you showed up while something was happening and you didn't know how it was going to turn out. How did your work as a director kind of inform how you went about directing the documentary? Well, I mean, it didn't particularly inform it very much. I mean, it, it because it had more to do with the way I would behave if I was doing the research on, on a scripted movie based on real events. Mm-hmm. So it was a closer cousin to me doing research for Heart of the Sea and going to Nantucket or uh, sort of Mystic Seaport and, mm-hmm. and talking to people about whaling and, and uh, tall ships and everything that they knew. The difference here is, of course, you're not just collecting information, it's personal. So those initial moments where I was kind of saying, do you mind if we, you know, if I ask you a few questions, I think it was helpful that I was recognizable to many of the people that I was Mm. talking to, but also, you know, it immediately skewed things a a, a little bit. And I also found that, you know, I was was sort of only willing to go so far Mm. and our documentary producing team would often you know, just push the conversation in a very humane, honorable, 
respectful way would push the, the conversation further. And I recognize that that's the real skill to develop is being able to draw people out, you know, and share more. Uh, and uh, as I left and they stayed, uh, Zan Parker, uh, Liz Morheim and others, you know, there, there began to be a, you know, an ongoing rapport with people in the town and I would come and go or when I couldn't be there because I was shooting Hillbilly Elegy or something, I would, I would literally FaceTime in and see people and just oh, touch wow. base. Uh, and in addition to talking to Zan about you know, what event she was covering, what she discovered. So we had a kind of a ongoing running dialogue in addition to them sending me links so that I could, I could catch up on, on uh, kind of keep up with dailies. Oh, that's, that's interesting too. And, and doing kind of conducting, were you actually conducting interviews remotely like that? Were you? No, you I didn't really. No, no, no. I, I, but I would, I would suggest to, to Zan or Liz, you know, if you're going to the Christmas tree lighting event, mm -hmm. try to find as many people who we've interviewed before there and uh, let's find out what this means to them. And, uh, you know, I just kept, I knew, I just kept wanting to connect the dots between the individuals because I, I felt like those storylines were important and vitally important, but so was their ongoing relationship with the town. And before long, we began to see that a lot of the individuals we were focusing on were, you know, they were the ones who were showing up at these events because mm -hmm. they were they were trying to participate. And uh, so that was that was interesting. The other interesting thing was that to be there and sometimes I would shoot a sort of a B camera. I'm not a, much of an operator. I, I sort of can operate a Canon 500 and, <laughs> and I, you know, and I was doing that. But uh, it was really great to see Lincoln else, you know, other experienced documentarians coming and going because we were we were in and out of there so so much and i was but but so was Zan and liz and uh we, we even worked with local documentarians sometimes to just keep covering this story and follow the lives of these people but to see how they would cover a scene because i wasn't telling them how to shoot it mm -hmm. i was letting them go in and, and get it and they're very autonomous so, i mean once in a while i'd have an idea and they we'd do it and they would do it but of course but uh, and that was fun, but it was interesting to understand their innate sense of how to follow a conversation and when to pan. And it, I was, it was interesting because there were, you know, there were places where I couldn't get a second, the second camera, there was no place to really put it. And they were just covering, you know, a dialogue scene, really an interaction with one camera, but they would know just when to, when to shift. And they just had a great ear for it and a sense of it. And it was kind of uncanny because I, I felt like, you know, the, the scripted director in me was just saying, we need to get coverage. And I realized they were getting something that you could absolutely cut together mm -hmm. um, and beautifully. And, um, but it was just a, a different feel and a different aesthetic. I was then working on Hillbilly Elegy with Maurice Alberte, who's a veteran documentary filmmaker and cinematographer. And I was talking to her a little bit about it. And, um, you know, she knew everybody who was working on our film. And she just said, yes, you just get an, you just start to have a feel. You just start to have a feel. They don't, they can't really articulate it, but you can be, as a director, you can really uh, trust it. That's awesome. How how soon after the horrible events in Paradise did you decide to endeavor to make this documentary? Because it seems like almost immediately after the fire, we're already in there and talking to people. I think we sent a camera crew probably within a week. Wow. Yeah, maybe the end of the first week or so. Then I went about another five days later. 
So by the time I arrived, that was already our second time to visit the town as a, as a production. Wow. And the media was leaving. There, there were no more network trucks. There were no more, um, I think NPR was still around doing some coverage and, and uh, that all of that was dying down, uh, which I could see. And I think they were a little bit relieved on the one hand, but on the other hand, they still had more to share. They were still coming to terms with what they'd been through. And in some ways, talking about it to somebody mm-hmm. gave it some value. Like, I think they, they wanted to share their story. Uh, those who didn't want to talk didn't, but there were there were a lot of people who benefited from feeling that that it was it was, might be useful for people to understand what it was like to go through something like this. And so when they began to see that we were going to stay, they really really began to open up oh, and, wow. and allow us in, into their lives uh, in ways that that was uh, incredibly meaningful and and significant to, to our film. And you know, and I and and I, I appreciated it. Did you have like a personal connection up there, like to be going there a week after uh, that went down? Like, you know, because there were fires all over the state at that point, although Paradise, you know, is probably the only city that was fully, you know, destroyed to that degree. Yeah, it was the destruction, but also the fact that that, uh, my mother-in-law lived in Paradise for uh, three or four years before she passed away. And I'd been there numerous times. And I I have a a lot of uh, very close in-laws from Cheryl's side of the family living in Reading. Mm-hmm. And they had just endured a big fire. Not, uh, you know, none of our family members were directly threatened, thankfully. But I was on pins and needles, you know, during that period of time. And then, lo and behold, paradise gets, you know, completely decimated. And you know, I was, uh, I was just, I was talking to my assistant, Louisa Vellis. We were looking at these images uh, on TV at, at the offices at Imagine, and uh, and she's just, she just said, "Man, Ray." Will they ever be able to rebuild? I mean, maybe that's a story. How do you come back from this? Rebuilding Paradise. She literally, you know, just invented the title there. and um, Encapsulated. And uh, that minute, I said, well, get Justin Wilkes and Sarah Bernstein on on the phone. Let's let's talk to them. They run Imagine Documentaries. And they knew I'd been looking for a subject and wanted to make to tackle a Verite documentary. I wanted to experience that and experiment with it. And, and, uh, and I, but I wanted it to be something personal and I was searching for subjects. And I said, you know, this town means something to me. You know, there's just so much of this happening between fires and tornadoes and floods. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's here in the US uh, and around the world. What do you think? And they said, we should, we should send a team up right away and, and just explore it. That's what they did. And they said, how fast can you get there? I said, well, I, I, probably in four or five days. And uh, that's what we did. And within another week or two after that, we'd shown some footage to Nat Geo and understood my take on it and uh, what we hoped to do. And, um, you know, they agreed to finance the documentary. Oh, wow. Tell me a little bit about uh, Imagine Documentaries. That's a relatively new thing for Imagine to be doing, correct? Yeah, you know, Brian Grazer and Michael Rosenberg at Imagine have taken the lead on a couple of documentaries in the past, Inside Deep Throat, one, a great one about wrestling called Beyond the Mat, and uh, we love being a part of it. We then did some, some work with Nat Geo, but our partners are, in, at that time weren't at all interested in us putting any time into, into that medium. That's not, that wasn't what they did. They wanted network television shows mm-hmm. and, and mainstream movies. So as Imagine has become more and more independent in recent years, 
with, with some independent financing and, and, and a new business model and, and, and point of view coming from, from Brian and, and myself, one of the things that we, we decided to do was to delve into documentaries. And we'd done some, some good work with Justin Wilkes when he was working at a, a great company called Radical Media. And uh, we'd come to know him, you know, and, and eventually we asked him if he wanted to come over and, and run our new, our new division. Mm-hmm. Um, and he decided to take that leap. He brought over Sarah Bernstein from HBO, who had, had trained under Sheila Nevins, who's you know among the handful of people <laughs> who proved to the world, to, to the industry, that documentaries were really viable, that audi- you know that they had broad appeal, that audiences could grow a, a tremendous appetite for documentary filmmaking if it was done well. And if, and and if the if the stories were interesting, and that's certainly the case. I mean, now our documentary business at Imagine is not only something that satisfies Brian and I creatively uh, and as storytellers, but it's a great profit center for our company. So it just makes sense on on all fronts to keep growing it. Um, creatively, since you were making this documentary while you were making Hillbilly Elegy, I'm, I'm just really curious how doing a verite documentary such as this uh, informed your your filmmaking style and, and your approach to to narrative filmmaking because i always think of your work as being kind of like very classical and composed and you know like thought out and and documentary is so you know run by the seat of your pants kind of thing yeah well i mean i i have found certain projects where i've 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 wanted to take especially in sequence by sequence take things in a, in, a, in a little more spontaneous looking direction mm-hmm. particularly frost nixon um, with, and Rush. <laughs> and Rush. But with Frost Nixon and Sal Totino, we literally didn't even rehearse scenes. Just two operators went in and started shooting. Oh, wow. And, and so I would have a point of view, a shot list, a set of goals. But these were not really, I would save the design shots almost as pickups. I, I first just wanted to see, you know, what Sal and Andrew, who was the, who was the uh, B camera operator, you know, what they were sort of finding in the scene. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it wasn't all the scenes, but probably about easily a third of them mm-hmm. uh, were staged that way. I mean, they kind of weren't staged. They were, yeah. I roughed that in in rehearsal a little oh, bit. Wow. And then I just let, let, let it happen. So, so I, I had good luck with that and enjoyed that uh, and felt like it gave, it gave it a kind of energy. Did it again with Rush. Anthony Dodd-Mantle is, of course, an experienced uh, documentarian as well. And so I had it in mind to do some of that with Hillbilly Elegy and in hiring Marie Salberte, that was part of the appeal was her background and her naturalism. And so it's already something that I was looking for. I think it influenced less the shooting of Hillbilly Elegy, which went very quickly because it wasn't a wildly expensive movie, but more the editing. I was, I was really editing both films simultaneously for a good stretch where to the point where I would spend a half a day on Hillbilly Elegy and a half a day on Rebuilding Paradise. Oh, wow. And there were a couple of scenes in Hillbilly Elegy that I know were reformed. My ideas were inspired, not by something d- that I was directly doing with Paradise, but by my, my, my a kind of a growing sense of, of, you know, the documentary aesthetic and sensibilities. And uh, it led to some, you know, some interest, a few interesting editorial choices that, and, and, and some ideas that I don't, I don't think I ever would have done before. I, I don't think I would have looked in that direction for the approach to the scene before. 
Are you? Uh, I I don't want to ask the question the the question of which direction do you prefer, but do you have plans to do more documentaries? Was it did it whet your appetite to to dig in and do more stuff like this? Yeah, we're we're uh, we've been slowed by COVID to some extent, but we're still finding our ways to 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 cover World Central Kitchen and Chef Jose Andres uh, for a film and. Um, we we've been kind of borrowing footage and asking people to shoot on their cell phones or whatever they get. And, and yeah. uh, you know, not, not unlike the opening sequence in uh, rebuilding paradise, but now, now we get to go in with our team and start shooting. And so we're, we're, you know, we're underway with that film. Well, that's amazing. Um, we, we're about out of time and we want to be really respectful of your time, but we, uh, we really appreciate you hopping on and doing this. Oh, well, it's, yeah, it's great to talk to you. Great to uh, connect with you again, Ben. Absolutely. I'm glad to see that you're, uh, you are, you are always a multi, multifaceted, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, uh, creative force. Oh. And it's, uh, it's, uh, putting that on my business card. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> great to see you uh, throwing your energies behind this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Loved your film. Uh, I, I hope it wins all the awards. <laughs> it's great oh, work. Thank, thank you so much. All right, Ben, take care. All right. So that was Ron Howard. Ron Howard, that was fantastic. Rebuilding Paradise is going to be screened through virtual cinemas, which is kind of a clever program that supports your local uh, independent movie theater. Uh, There's a link that will take you to the right place at the Cam Noir uh, website, which is our official website. Uh, Once again, camnoir.com. And uh, coming up now is the cinematographer, the DP of uh, Rebuilding Paradise, Lincoln Else. So I'm, I'm here via Zoom with Lincoln Else, the DP of Rebuilding Paradise. Thank you so much for making the time to do this. It's an, an amazing film and I think a really inspiring film. Can you tell me at all, like, how did you end up uh, getting involved with this? You know, Ron Howard is someone who's known uh, mostly for his narrative films, although he's made some documentaries. But this is, I, I'm pretty sure, his first verite documentary. That's right. Um so I got involved in this project uh, originally through Zan Parker, uh, who's um, one of the film's producers. Zan and I had worked together previously on documentary work. And when Zan got involved with Ron, and I don't want to tell Zan's story, or I don't want to speak for her, but um, Ron was interested in bringing in a crew that had the expertise in this genre, namely in verite documentary filmmaking. Zan comes from that world, has a lot of experience in it, uh, as do I. So once Zan was involved, she brought in uh, some of her, her cohorts uh, that she's worked with in the past and then built a team to tell the story that Ron was interested in telling. And uh, Ron had told us that literally within five days of the fire in paradise, there was a crew on the ground. Were you part of that crew? No, I wasn't a part of the very initial footage that was captured right after the fire. And maybe that's actually one of the most important things to throw out is that a, a film of this scale uh, or duration, I should say, namely one that's following a whole community for a full year is a team effort. So mm. um, the the footage in the final film is a patchwork of content from myself, from uh, a number of other talented uh, cinematographers, as well as from uh, cell phone footage, from community members, and even just from some some talented shooters who live in paradise. So it's a team effort across the board. The initial shoots right after the fire, I wasn't on because I was involved in other projects and then didn't get looped in until Zan and I both joined the project um, a month or two after the fire and then mm-hmm. took it from there. 
So uh, when you're dealing with multiple teams of shooters as as a DP, what is your overall uh, job, especially like if a shoot is happening, like something happens and you're getting one of the people who lives in paradise to go shoot it quickly and it's too fast for you to be there. Do you talk to them? Do you do you make sure that the cameras are set up the way that you want them set up or like how do you what kind of quality control are you able to do? That's a that's a fantastic question, and that's that's one of the biggest challenges on a project like this, as separate from say on a narrative film. Um, I know a lot of the the director photographer or the the shooters that you speak with um, are usually coming from the narrative world, where you're able to control basically everything. So yeah. in that world, if you're the director of photography, you can have a very specific vision for here's here's the visual language that I want this entire film to use and to be consistent. In a documentary project, especially one like this, where there are so many people involved, that's a lot harder just because you inevitably have to use a lot of different people, uh, a lot of different eyes and a lot of different approaches. The challenge is to try to have a unified visual language that everyone is using. In this case, that meant whenever possible, I would actually spend some time with a cinematographer on the phone before they would be shooting to talk through sort of the ground rules, or I should say, again, the, the language that we were trying to maintain mm -hmm. throughout the piece. And then, of course, a lot of that is going to then get determined in the edit room. On a Verite film, you're going to shoot way more than you actually end up using after the fact. And then in the edit room, we're, the, the filmmakers are going to try to stay as true as possible to that language, uh, namely so that the audience has that sort of visual anchor to hang on to throughout the film. But inevitably, some things are going to be captured differently because that's how they unfolded. That's the beauty of a, a Verite documentary is that you're going to capture what truly plays out in front of you in the best style that you can. And sometimes content is gonna trump. And even though something is shot not quite right, what actually is happening in front of the camera is the most important. And so that ends up in the film. On this project, again, it's a complete mosaic patchwork of footage from all sorts of different sources. And we knew that going in, that we were going to be using archival footage, we were going to be using different crews, all sorts of different sources. And at the end of the day, knowing that the content itself was going to be what drove all of the decisions of what actually ends up in the file film. Um, as far as a lot of the scenes, and, and I feel like uh, reality TV has inured me to the sense of something feeling very fake and set up, and, and then I watch your film, and I really do feel like a fly on the wall, like, you know, Frederick Wiseman style. And I'm, I'm curious, how different are those approaches? Have you worked in both versions of, of this? Because I feel like reality TV, to a certain degree, has kind of uh, uh, affected the way documentary is made in a lot of ways. And this, does, this feels like a documentary that exists outside of that world. Absolutely. And um, I've actually not worked in reality TV, um, although I'm not criticizing it in any way. I know there there's some amazing reality content out there, no question. Uh, but yes, they are two completely different worlds. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'll take it as a huge compliment that you referenced uh, <laughs> Wiseman, for sure, um, as uh, one of the original kings of Verite filmmaking. This film uh, is trying to pull a page from that script, uh, for sure. Our goal was always to be that um, fly on the wall. Namely, if a, a scene is unfolding, we're going to let it unfold and be there to see what actually happens. Now, without going too far down a sort of tech hole, at the beginning of this 
production, we did, of course, spend a bunch of time figuring out how do we want to shoot it? Uh, what equipment do we want to shoot this on? In what style? Um, yeah. Sort of what, what visual look do we want to create for this film? Knowing that it's going to be a patchwork mosaic of, of different sources, we decided to... Um, partly because of Ron's background uh, in narrative work, where again, you are able to control everything and make it as beautiful or as uh, specific as you want, partly because of that and because of my own interests in really trying to make the visuals uh, be as beautiful and as cinematic as possible. We went with a camera and uh, lenses and an approach in general that was perhaps slightly more cumbersome than on some of the other Verite documentaries that I've worked on, but with the intent of trying to capture true, honest, verite, fly on the wall scenes, but as cinematically and beautifully as possible. Mm -hmm. um, that inevitably is a push and pull balancing act because you always would love to have better control over a scene and light it differently and, you know, have tell someone, hold on, can you not walk through that door until I get in the right position? Like you're always tempted to try to control things. But uh, we held a very hard line on this, um, or as, as I generally do on documentary work across the board, to let things play out as they would and not actually interfere, not actually ever affect that scene itself, uh, but truly be a fly on the wall and let it play out as it was, was going to play out. Well, and I also feel like there's there's a, a a very judicious use of drone footage too that you know like it's it's sort of automatically cinematic whenever you see it and also completely appropriate for a documentary, especially a documentary about you know the destruction of a of a community to see the community and to see it being rebuilt. When you're dealing with that stuff, like as the DP, were you were you in contact with the drone people? Were you telling them what kinds of shots to get? Can you talk about how you kind of coach the drone team, whoever they are? Absolutely. Um, and again, there were multiple different drone operators uh, and teams involved in this. I think the, the main one that I worked with the most, uh, Sean Haberstock, an incredible drone pilot and cinematographer in his own right. Um, absolutely, I was working with him and with other teams to give a specific approach to the drone footage. And I think the one thing that generally my approach to, to drone footage across the board, and especially on this film, is that what's driving that footage is the content. It's not mm -hmm. the drone. Namely, if the audience is thinking about the fact that it's a drone that's taking that footage, something's gone wrong. Uh, to yeah. me, especially on this film where the visuals that we were capturing with the drone footage are just so emotionally powerful, there's no need to add emotion to that footage or to, to try to put any emphasis on how it was shot. Instead, uh, allowing those uh, visuals, those, those locations, those landscapes to exist and for the audience to actually have the time to take in what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. So that's why you'll notice in a, quite a few of the drone shots are extremely simple. And my hat's off to, to Sean uh, in that respect, in knowing and understanding when the, the best shot is the simplest uh, and is the smoothest, is the most contemplative, uh, something that is really just allowing that content in front of the camera to, to shine and to reveal itself. Well, and also uh, as an audience member, like 
allowed me to really get a sense of the devastation, but also feel like I'm watching it the whole time. Like, you know, you guys are there at like one month and then I want to say it was like six months and then nine months. But it felt like you were there the whole time. And we're and like those those moments were just sort of like turning points in the story. Now, uh, you know, you've talked a lot about about Verte, and I just kind of want to ask you about your background in in Verte cinematography and like what drew you to that in in particular? In my case, it's a very simple story because I honestly was sort of born into it. Um, Mm -hmm. My father, John Els, uh, is a Verte documentary filmmaker. Uh, So I I grew up literally uh, learning to load 16 millimeter Aton uh, magazines on the dining room table. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Did you have the, the changing bag or the changing tent? Which, which oh, you oh, oh, come on. All about the bag. Got uh, it. This is, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm Your dad kidding. wanted cheap labor. Oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, yeah, I grew up in a, a documentary film family and started assisting for my dad uh, in high school. Uh, actually, the first uh, true documentary film that I assisted on was Cadillac Desert, uh, a mm-hmm. series about um, water in the Western United States. So I, I grew up in that world and I owe, you know, I know ev- I owe everything to my, my father who's still uh, a working DP and do- uh, documentary director, by the way. And every once in a while we get a chance to work together, which is, which is a true joy. And so I grew up around documentary film and then um, I kind of got beautifully, wonderfully derailed for a decade uh, after college working for the National Park Service. Uh, I actually worked in Yosemite National Park uh, as the park's climbing ranger for a number of years. Oh, wow. Yeah, which I had a, quite a few years there where my dad and I were um, in competition with each other to see who had the best job. Um, <laughs> and I, I thought I was winning for a solid decade there where I was getting paid by your tax dollars to rock climb. Um, and then I eventually uh, allowed him to win the war uh, and came around to, uh, back into the documentary world. Uh, mm-hmm. First, actually starting to shoot for Discovery, National Geographic, Travel Channel, other sort of uh, documentary um, outlets and companies doing work that was tied to the outdoor world, to wilderness, to climbing, to uh, exotic and and interesting places that I was able to access because of the work that I'd been doing with the National Park Service. Mm -hmm. And then that that actually led me into uh, working with Ken Burns on his National Parks series. Uh, Mm -hmm. He did a a series about National Parks, America's Greatest Idea. And I worked with Buddy Squires, uh, the director of photography, who's done a lot of Ken's work, an amazing, uh, truly talented, incredible documentary. Well, I haven't seen that specific Ken Burns documentary, but he's known as sort of the opposite of Verte. He's very formalist. Absolutely. Uh, and th- which <laughs> that's completely true. I mean, Ken Burns' work is interview driven yeah. uh, and and visuals, uh, or namely in this case, it was capturing um, national parks. It was yeah. capturing uh, some of America's most beautiful spaces. So I spent um, quite a bit of time over the course of a few years uh, working with Buddy and then uh, eventually shooting uh, a good portion of the piece by the end all over the United States uh, and Alaska, capturing mm-hmm. those different environments. And that was really what what pulled me out of the National Park Service and into cinematography and documentary work. Into the family business. Correct. Is, is your father a uh, cinema verite uh, documentarian as well? Yes, he is. Uh, he's done a number of work, or directed uh, and shot a number of different documentaries, um, but quite a few of them in a, a true uh, verite style. Uh, so I grew up 
learning that style, appreciating that style. And then uh, my father also uh, ran the documentary program at the UC School of Journalism at Berkeley. Oh, wow. Uh, for a number of years, yeah. So uh, he, there's an entire generation now of <laughs> documentarians uh, who sort of came up and learned uh, under him who, you know, I think the world is better for it. Uh, my father remains one of uh, the best sort of um, moral compasses, uh, I think, for documentary film, uh, and speci specifically for verite film, in terms of trying to tell true stories in a true style. So I've always been drawn toward verite work, mainly handheld verite shooting, uh, which I think is, is something that we're living through a, a wonderful period uh, of that type of cinematography. There's, there's a lot of it that's very good, but in some ways it's also a, a, a dying breed in that a lot of cinematographers these days are so used to different gimbals or different, different techniques to hold a camera that are different than putting the camera in your hands or on your shoulder uh, and then shooting in that a more traditional style. And what's the difference uh, between those two things for you? I mean, for me, and this is a, a personal preference, for me, I like a, a, a very simple handheld style. Namely, I like a shoulder-mounted camera, uh, one that I can actually hold on my shoulder for the, the stability that that provides, uh, as well as just that physical connection uh, to the camera. And then I just love that more sort of simple style of being very much in the moment, again, as re being as reactive as possible, uh, not having to deal with any kind of rig or, or steady cam or uh, easy rig or, or other tool. Uh, although I've used all of those and I, I live half in the documentary world and half in the commercial world. So I'm mm -hmm. used to using all of those different tools. But for Verite work, I definitely prefer a sort of as, as simple hands-on style as possible. Mm -hmm. Did you get into doing commercials with that style? Like were people looking for that kind of a style? Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, there's obviously there's quite a bit of very powerful and effective commercial work out there that is shot in that true verite handheld style. Now, of course, as soon as you move into the commercial world, it's, it's sort of a wonderful hybrid where mm -hmm. In that world, of course, you can control things or you have that option uh, because it's an entirely different mission that you're trying to do. Yeah. Uh, often you're trying to capture that verite feel, even if the actual scene that you're capturing is contrived. Yeah. Uh, so I love living in both worlds, uh, namely in the documentary world at times, and then flipping around and using those same techniques, that same aesthetic uh, in a commercial or narrative world. Um, can we talk a little bit about lighting on uh, Rebuilding Paradise? Again, like, you know, to create this fly on the wall feeling, how much were you controlling the lighting in any given situation? Or were you sort of dealing with like available light and a little bounce or a small, you know, instrument here or there? Like, how are you? What was your your strategy? Sure. The, the strategy was very simple. It, namely, it was available light. Full stop. Really? All, all available light? All available light. Um, wow. 
Yeah. Now that's, <laughs> that's the simple uh, explanation. <laughs> the, the truth is, of course, there are other ways that you can control light or control scenes uh, in terms of if you're going to be, say, interviewing someone, you can put them where you want to put them. Um, yeah, yeah. As, as soon as you've sort of broken that fourth wall, so to speak, and it's no longer a verite scene where you're a fly on the wall, if you're actually going to be interviewing someone, well, then you can put them to a window or you can put them but even for the interviews you weren't lighting you weren't like setting up lights for the interviews because the interviews look gorgeous that's correct um so all of the interviews and i'm trying to rack my brain here to make sure that i'm not misspeaking all of the interviews are natural light um, wow so that's a testament to a few things one it's taking the time to figure out where we could actually be putting people Two, it's a testament to technology and to cameras mm -hmm. uh the the truth is just watching how camera technology has changed in the last few decades it's night and day what you can capture today what you can get away with quote unquote is just a world apart from what it was even a few years ago so having cameras that are sensitive enough to be able to shoot in very little light, mm. that's a huge benefit. And then also our decision to shoot this on really good prime lenses. So we had the f-stop, we had the, the ability to shoot in very dim light and just create beautiful frames uh, with really good glass. Uh, I know that I said we weren't going to get too mired in tech, but I'm just curious, what, what camera were you using? We don't need to get into how you had it set up or anything. Sure. This film we were shooting uh, with the Sony Venice mm -hmm. um, and on uh, Cook uh, S4 Primes. Oh, nice. Now, that combination, if that was sort of the gold standard that we chose for this particular film, Venice on Cook Glass, that's what we shot a bunch of it on. But then when you watch the final film, like I said earlier, it's a mosaic patchwork of content from different places. There's a lot of footage in this film from all sorts of other cameras. I mean, mm -hmm. I, we, <laughs> there's probably footage from most cameras out there somewhere in this <laughs> film, <laughs> um, for sure. But the bulk of the interview content or sort of the, the significant verite scenes and characters that we follow was mostly with the Venice on Cook Glass. So uh, tell me a little bit like, you know, because you're you're dealing with a story that you you can't control because it's unfolding in real time in the city that's been you know decimated by a fire. How and, and this maybe is more of a production manager question, but how do you choose when like they're going to bring you and whatever crew that you brought with you? I'm assuming it must have been a relatively small crew just just to stay out of the way of people. But how did you strategically choose? OK, like, you know, they're having a big street festival. We're going to go there for this. Like, how did you go about choosing those times that you would go there versus when you would send someone who lived there or just ask someone to go film something on their phone? That was one of the biggest challenges, of course, in a perfect world. At the beginning of this film, uh, the entire crew, including Ron, would have moved to paradise and yeah. lived there for a year straight. Of course, that wasn't logistically possible. So it was a constant sort of balancing act, uh, figuring out, okay, when does it warrant bringing uh, the quote unquote, the full crew, namely Zan and Liz, the two uh, producers who were most often there, myself, a camera assistant, a sound recordist, that would be sort of the bare bones main crew that was there. And then Ron, of course, whenever he was able. We tried to use that team uh, as much as possible. That's the short answer, is mm -hmm. that any, any Verite documentary is best captured from a visual standpoint by the same person. Uh, it's the same eye looking through that camera. It's the same camera. It's the same team. 
that's the best from a visual standpoint. That's also the best from a production standpoint in terms of the characters themselves that you're spending time with. Mm-hmm. On a film, a film like this is an extremely intimate experience with those characters. Uh, and we got to know them very well, of course, over the course of that year. Just say using um, Michelle John, the school superintendent. I mean, I spent weeks uh, with her over the course of that year uh, in very close, intimate uh, situations. As a result, it means that I create over that year a very close relationship with her. She's very comfortable with myself and the sound recordist and a big, awkward camera in her face, (laughs) Um, which at first is extremely imposing um, and, uh, you know, very off-putting. But over time, you develop a relationship such that we can slowly work our way toward being as much of a fly on the wall as possible. For that reason, the more consistency we can have, the better with that crew of who's spending time with those people. We ended up, of course, having to do a mix. Uh, I would be there whenever I could be. Uh, If I wasn't available, being pulled off on other projects or for whatever other reason, we would use uh, other DPs that would come in, which I I should mention, we had an incredible team um, of Wolfgang Held, Jenny uh, Morello, and uh, Dan Duran, who shot a lot of the original content right after the fire, um, as well as many others. So there were quite a few folks holding the camera or the cameras uh, throughout this project. So can you tell me about the cinematographers who you worked with who are based in paradise? We were really lucky that there are actually quite a few talented filmmakers, um, cinematographers, and visual storytellers, for lack of a better term, uh, in and around Paradise. So Tanner Strauss uh, and Chris Smith were two of the folks that we spent quite a bit of time with because they were telling some of the same stories that we were and filming in and around Paradise. They were also folks who were there at a moment's notice. So if we weren't able to come up for a specific event, uh, they were able to cover it for us. Uh, And everyone knew them, which was really valuable. Uh, We, over the course of the year, we of course got to know the town very well. um, And we like to think sort of became uh, members of that community, uh, at least surrogate members. But Chris and Tanner and some of the other folks that we worked with, they truly are a part of that community. And so it was very important and meaningful uh, for them to be helping us and to be a part of our production. The community could see that Uh, We were working with folks in that community and that we really were invested in telling this story in the long haul, not just as one news cycle, but actually getting to know them and working with folks in that community through the course of the film. And I do want to give one uh, huge shout out to, I think if I'm doing my math right, I think the person, the crew member who actually spent the most time in Paradise on the whole project was the camera assistant. Uh, The main (laughs) camera assistant, uh, Daryl, was absolutely like he was the anchor that held the whole thing together and spent the most time there, got to know characters so well, uh, and then was able to be consistent even through different DPs who would be coming in. Um, and so Daryl Medina was was definitely one of our, our backbone people through the whole project. Well, and since you're talking about the camera assistant, I, I want to ask a completely ignorant question on my part. But on a documentary, I would assume that as an operator, you're also pulling your own focus and all that stuff. But doesn't like what what does an assistant do on a documentary? Is it just whatever needs to be done camera wise? Um, 
short answer is yes. The camera crew on a Verite documentary like this basically consists of a director of photography or myself, uh, who's, who is also the operator, and then a camera assistant who's basically doing everything else. So mm-hmm. that, that camera assistant is, and again, remember, we would be recording perhaps four to six hours of footage per day, actual footage. So that yeah. means we, like, I might actually have a camera on my shoulder for eight to 10 hours a day on the whole time. So, yeah. and that's not in a studio, that's out in the fields all over the place. So Daryl was managing batteries, managing downloads of data, um, lens swaps, anything you can imagine to keep that footage continuing, he's holding it together. One of the, my favorite things about Verite documentary work is that everyone wears a number of hats at once. And again, mm-hmm. I work in the commercial world as well. And I've, you know, I enjoy sitting on, sitting on a chair and watching a monitor and yelling into a radio as much as anyone, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, asking for my, my latte to come from craft services. But on a Verite doc, it, everything flips on its head and you have only a few people and you're all going to wear whatever hats are needed in that moment. Daryl, as the main assistant, uh, he also shot on the project at times, and some of his footage is in the the finished film. So having a crew that's able to fill a number of different roles is is hugely important when you have a a long-term verite doc like this. Lincoln, let me jump in here real quick with a question. I noticed during the uh, I noticed during the movie a couple of shots that uh, appeared to be slow motion shots of the city burning, and I wasn't sure uh, if that was maybe something that was created in post production for a particular effect, or if maybe someone happened to be shooting in a sixty frame per second mode. And how did those very dramatic slow motion fire shots make it into the the movie? All of that footage is real and was shot uh, during the actual fire. So yes, there were some absolutely incredible cinematographers who were in paradise during the fire, shooting there for for news outlets as reality was unfolding. And yes, one of those cinematographers shot some absolutely stunning uh, slow motion content of some of the homes in paradise being completely obliterated by that fire. Wow. Well, uh, it, it definitely it adds an extra element to the documentary that I, I, I wasn't expecting to see there. It, it does at some points kind of then, you know, you're you know, you're watching this sort of horrific thing unfold. But now there's this stylization that's that's happening, too. That's like, where did this where did this come from? And were there actually people on the ground shooting the, the fires and putting themselves in, in danger? And it turns out they were. And I will just uh, throw out there that I think it's no surprise to anyone who's seen the film that I agree. The, mo- the first 10 minutes are the most visually compelling part of the film. It's um, a white knuckle harrowing ride for sure. A- yeah. Absolutely. And I think that that um, is just a testament to, you know, content is king. Like actually seeing that footage captured by the people who lived through that experience. It doesn't matter what camera it's shot on. It doesn't matter if it's in focus. It doesn't matter any of the technical stuff that I, in my career, spend so much time obsessing over. All that goes out the window. And those first 10 minutes just set the stage that then we spend the rest of the film kind of trying to to live up to, trying to honor that experience um, that's captured in the first 10 minutes. And... One of the things that I found most compelling about this story and spending a year with the community of Paradise and and that that group of people was getting a chance to watch civic society unfold, namely seeing how much 
work it takes for us all to live together in a in a functioning society. Uh, and I think that that's something that it does come across in the film, but it's something that I just wanted to mention was society and community takes work. And that's something yeah. that we see the characters in this film grapple with, um, especially in a case like this, uh, when a community is being rebuilt, it's hard. It takes compromise. It takes endless meetings. It takes everyone not getting quite what you might want because we can't all have, have what we want if we want to have a functioning successful community together uh, and that's something that was so fascinating to watch over the course of the year was everyone grappling with that challenge of, of realizing okay perhaps we can't all have exactly what we want but if we all work together and compromise and put the time and the effort in we can actually rebuild this town in a way that is sustainable long term environmentally community every way it's something that can sustain it's something that we we actually talked to ron about too because it's like a weird even though obviously it was this was not your intention when you were making it but it's a weird mirror into what's going on in the entire world right now and certainly in our country right now where we're, you know, trying to get back to work and trying to get kids back to school. And like so many of the things that, that happened to paradise are happening to the whole country right now with COVID where it's like, we can't get people to go back to work. We can't get people to go back to school. We can't ensure people's safety. And so much of what was being discussed was that. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, of course the parallels to COVID and to the whole country is now living through a disaster of sorts uh, or an emergency of sorts, somewhat parallel to what Paradise uh, went through, of course, now just on a national scale. And I think that lesson applies equally, namely that all of us have to think beyond ourselves. We have to think about a larger goal and a larger community and all of us as a community, as a nation, getting through this, or I should say even as a planet, that it's gonna take self-sacrifice for each one of us, not being able to do absolutely everything that we want to do because that's what it's gonna take for us all to survive and for our society to come out the other side of this, uh, hopefully stronger than it was before. Cool, I think that's a great place to leave it and I know that you need to get going. So uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for doing this. Before we go, uh, where can people find you online if they wanna see your work? I have a wonderfully, painfully out-of-date website that yes. does exist. Uh, every LP literally says that, every single person. <laughs> the only people who have, if, if you're very up-to-date, it means that you're not working, I think. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I fall squarely into that camp. Um, I'm lucky uh, in that it's been an extremely busy few years, so I've completely ignored everything related to websites. Uh, I'm also... Um, I work as a, a DP, but I'm also a, a director and partner in a production company, Nova Select. And so that company uh, also has examples of, of my work and what I do. So I, I live a hybrid life in the documentary world and the commercial world uh, and enjoy living in both. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for making the time. We really love your documentary. Wonderful. Well, thank you uh, for taking the time yourselves. All right, so that was uh, Lincoln Nelson, and before that was uh, the amazing Ron Howard. Thank you both for coming on the show. It was an honor to talk to both of you. We uh, love your documentary and encourage all of our listeners to check it out. And now, short ends. So, uh, Ben, it is time for our famous short ends. Um, I think I'll just dive right in here. Cartoni, 
a manufacturer of tripods for the motion picture industry. Well, they make- I, I own a Cartoni tripod that you recommended to me many years ago, and I still have it, and that thing is a tank. Ma- uh, incredible, made in Italy. The Cartoni products are uh, are world famous. People in the know know, know Cartoni, but uh, oh they, my God. they just had an announcement. Uh, they are shifting gears a little bit, and they're now making a giant UV disinfection device for motion picture uh, and video equipment. It's essentially a huge box, and they call it the UVC boxer and Mm -hmm. essentially it is like a sort of a giant trunk type of thing on wheels and you can open it up stick your gear in there and then uh it will use a germicidal uv light to disinfect whatever you put inside of the box it it, question yeah can i get in the box I wouldn't recommend it. UVC very very harmful to humans. So uh, that, uh, that it it blocks more more or less harmful than COVID nineteen. Debatably, I mean, depends on your exposure to that UVC. You could you could fry yourself pr- pretty good. But the, but the whole idea is right. you put it in there, and it doesn't necessarily create a lot of heat. And so sensitive stuff that you might put in there can be sanitized. And uh, each lamp has like six thousand hours of use. And you can I, I have a feeling sanitize stuff in seconds. So if you really basically needed to be able to throw things in, or oh, I should say maybe it's more than seconds, maybe it's minutes, but a couple of minutes for each mm-hmm. batch of stuff, and then boom, it's sanitized, and you can take it out and, and work with it and that's it's pretty clever i think for a company that uh that has been building camera support equipment for for decades and decades to uh say hey we've got all the technology here let's let's build a thing to try and keep people uh, safe cartoon is an it, amazing company amazing. and uh their their gear is is some of my favorite i remember my first interaction with their stuff was they had a uh, a, a dutch tilt head that everyone used went back in orlando when i lived in orlando one of the rental companies had it and everyone coveted it because it was like the only one that we had in, in the whole city. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, a really handy piece of technology. And Cartoni is a really uh, innovative company. And uh, they, you know, they're not letting COVID stop them. They're, they're, they're working on other stuff, which is cool. So, so Ben, uh, what's your uh, short end uh, this week? Well, I'm going to bring the room down a little bit. I apologize for this a little bit, and I hope it's not too self-serving. But um, I wanted to kind of make it a little bit of a tribute to the person who inspired me to go into filmmaking in the first place. And he passed away, uh, yesterday and it wasn't COVID related. He, he'd been, uh, he'd had health issues for a while. Uh, his name was Bob Goldberg. He went by Bobbo. Everyone called him Bobbo. And, uh, when I was a young kid, uh, he told me about monster movies. He told me about alien before I ever saw alien. He told me about the thing and the howling and were, were you too those. young to see those movies? And he was the, the, Oh God, the, yeah, the uncle, way too young. the uncle-ish type of uh, friend of your yeah. dad who, uh, <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> and, l- and let me back up a little bit okay. so my father as i have i don't know that i've ever talked about this on here but my father was boza the clown in miami and then in orlando um pretty much like miami was before i was born and Your then dad in orlando. was a real bozo my dad was actually bozo the clown he uh he hosted uh, a bozo show bozo was like basically franchised across the country and uh bob was his sidekick a character named snappy pappy that's where they met and he was my father's best friend from the day they started working on that until you know until he passed away a couple days ago and uh he was an amazing actor he was a professional mime and also a voiceover artist weird you know he had an audio recording studio uh the first actual film i made he actually did my sound design for me and when i was about 12 years old he gave me the dick smith do-it-yourself monster makeup handbook dick smith was the guy who designed 
the makeup for like the exorcist and taxi driver and stuff. And, um, he gave me this do it yourself monster makeup handbook. And that got me into makeup and make my, my first, uh, professional work in the film industry was as a makeup artist. And it started because of him. And, uh, you know, it's a personal thing and I was considering not really bringing it up, but I, I feel like, um, the thing about Bob, uh, that is amazing. Cause I'm not the only person who he kind of stood in this light for was that he was a mentor and that he he was the he was someone who would kind of expose the people in his life to art and art making and he was always drawing and tinkering and doing sound design and making music and you know he had a theater background and all all this stuff and he was he was just he was brilliant and funny and he was an inspirational person and uh you know uh, i i sort of feel like all of us could be that to someone else if we if we know someone who has you know inclinations to go in, into this business or interests uh i i think it, there's nothing better that you could do for somebody than to encourage them to pursue a dream and maybe point them in the right direction for that dream and he he did that for me and uh you know if i was to you know talk about some awesome polarizing filter as my short end i would be lying this has been weighing on me for the last few weeks because he went into hospice care and like we knew this was coming and uh but uh you know i i i love him he he's a wonderful man uh, and he really did inspire not just me he inspired a, a bunch of people um my friend ray letterer who was uh sort of his, uh, stepson, uh, he, he inspired him to do what he does. And now he's an artist, uh, who does like huge, huge video games. Um, you know, just, I, I think that we all have those, that person in our life. And I think that if we can be that person to someone else, that's, you know, a, an amazing, good, good deed you can do to somebody. And he did it for me. So I, I wanted to memorialize him in this one way that I have. You know what? Uh, absolutely. Let's let's uh, let's hear it for the mentors. Let's hear it for Bobo. Let's you know. Um, the, I don't think mentors get nearly as much uh, as much credit and as much public thanks as they should get. But uh, really, you know, they, if they can spark in inside someone else uh, a desire and um, you know wish fulfillment and goals and everything else, that that's about the most honorable thing that you can do for someone. You can completely change their change their life that way. And it's really just by sharing something that, that you personally love with someone else. So, uh, then yeah. I, I, and, and I really appreciate and right down to the you, end every film I made, he would watch it. He would give me feedback on it. You know, like everything I did, he would always, he, he was, he was engaged. And I know that, you know, he was like that with his kids. He was like that with, my friend Ray, he was, you know, he, he was like that probably with God knows how many people. Now, now was he a biting the, critic? Like when, did he take a look at it and go like, oh man, this is this, you gotta, you gotta change all this there. Did he, uh, no, but he, but he was, he would be incisive as to story. Like if you pitched him an idea and he didn't quite get it, he would, he would ask you questions oh, and sometimes kind of pick the scab off of your story and you'd be like, oh yeah, that's why that doesn't work. Um, it's like why they say you don't let your mom read your screenplay because it's like you know your mom's just gonna say oh it was wonderful dear <laughs> you know you yeah no but I mean like he he had like real interest in it and I, I never saw any of his super eight films because for some reason I think he had lost them mm. but like he would always tell me these stories about doing like like stop motion dinosaurs and stuff with uh, super eight and eight millimeter I think he preferred split eight because it was easier to backwind oh, yeah so he could do he could do double exposures and stuff. And, uh, you know, he was the first person that opened my mind to the, to the idea that 
a regular person could go off and make a movie. And um, we, we live in a time where you can sort of find that mentorship on uh, on YouTube in a thousand different forms. If you, it's not if really you a mentor. If you want to find, yeah, information about how to do stuff, the how to do stuff part's not hard to find. But the someone who cares about, like, story, um, I mean, in the, or, in the case of Bobo, you. it was... It was genre, yeah, t- taking a personal interest in somebody, and it's it's hard to come by those people, you know. And I, uh, there are some people who I try and help out uh, here and there, and a lot of them are people who I've never met. I, I you know, I come across them on Twitter, or Facebook, or whatever. They ask me questions, and I always try and help them. And I, 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 I do think about him, you know, long before he passed away. I do think about like how he set me on whatever the hell course I'm on. And, uh, you know, I don't, what, someone who's like that for real in your life, like when they're gone, you kind of go like, I don't even know who I would be if I didn't know you. Hmm. I like, I wouldn't be me. I'd be a different person. That's, that's, that's a beautiful tribute. And, um, thank you for, for making that your short end. I'm really, I'm yeah. really glad that you did. I'm really, well, I'm, I'm, yeah, gl- thanks for uh, no, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear it. So, uh, Hey, uh, and uh, dear listeners, uh, thank you for going on this, this little ride with us. And, uh, we're going to be back next week with another fantastic episode. I, I already know what it is, but I'm not going to spoil it. We have, uh, Oh, I don't know which one is next week. Oh, don't, I can't wait to find out. <laughs> uh, all right. Well then, uh, until next week, uh, cinematography. Oh, we, we, we need to, uh, Oh, we got to uh, thank, thank people. Okay. Well, yeah, okay, yeah. Let, let, let's thank some people. Let's thank, uh, super producer Alana Cody. I, I've said it. Oh my God. I've said it before. Alana, Alana worked like triple time to get uh, these two interviews for this episode together. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was pretty amazing. And also it was kind of like a race to the finish. Like we, we uh, were, were told like, Hey, uh, so we're probably going to be interviewing Ron at X time. Are you available? And, and I was like, yeah, sure. And then we hadn't heard, we hadn't heard from the publicist. And then like 15 minutes before we had to hit record, she was like, okay, it's a go. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Our, uh, our Furiosa of the cinematography podcast, our super pretty producer. Amazing. Yeah. She, she, she made it happen. Let's thank Ben Katz, uh, cutting and toiling and cutting and cutting, uh, to make us not sound like Oof. complete idiots. We're not making, yeah. not making it easy for him this no, week. I can tell this you that. Is a tough one. Uh, Kezala Tracci, who's, uh, maybe he'll actually listen to this one. Maybe he'll listen. He might listen to this one because I know he's a Ron Howard fan. Yeah. All right. Well then, Ben, I think that's all of our thank yous. Don't forget to, uh, to subscribe to our podcast and follow us in all the social places. Uh, we'll see you next week. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.